Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Hello, John. Welcome. Welcome. This is this is his new lines. entrance, JW. I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to experiment with it. Terrible. So we have an we have Hello, our special governor. <laughs> no, governor, that's very good. Mm. Welcome to our special guest, JW Verrett, associate professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School <laughs> from George Mason University. <laughs> he had to practice that. I did have times. to practice that. I kept <laughs> saying it all night. Antonin Scalia, Antonin Scalia. Anyway. Before I, I introduce JW and he'll tell us a, a, a funny story, not to put pressure on you, JW, I thought I would tell the listeners today that this shit's going to get pretty legal with JR and JW. So their job is to bring the knowledge today. <laughs> so and my you're job. Tell, you're saying we're boring. <laughs> no, we're gonna, no, no, no. You're telling my, our listeners to My job to be is bored. to bring it back and anglify it so that people know what the hell you guys are talking about. So bring, bring, it, bring your A game. But uh, try to remember that we have all kinds of listeners listen to us badge right, well, on about this shit. That's quite a build-up, isn't it, JW? Yeah, all right. John's yeah. been really lethargic well, today. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how I feel when you guys go deep nerd on the market structure, you know, speed and, and dynamics. See? And, See? Mm-hmm. We're, we're really smart, John. Mm. Don't you know this? <laughs> so anyway, JW is a, is a friend of the firm and has been a friend of the firm for a number of years, and it's a... Pretty interesting story. So I thought we'll we'll kick it over to you, JW. To t- I, I keep wanting to call you JR, JR and JW, JR and JW. Would you like to say a little bit about his background? Or I said he was an associate professor. Okay. All right, fine. Fuck's sake. Okay. JW, how do you know the two of us? <laughs> he's, he's like, I oh, wish I didn't. And you're sorry that you do. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I won the IEX Bugs and Lines podcast fan contest. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> exactly. That's what happened. You too um, can win. That's yeah. Right. So uh, I I was on Capitol Hill. I took some leave from teaching, got bored with writing law review articles. So I went to work for House Financial Services for a couple of years uh, when Flash Boys came out. So that's when I saw it, and I saw that um, you know everybody in the in the policy community at that time was focused on just the top lines: is the market rigged or is the market not rigged? And not really going into any depth in it. And I read the book; it kind of opened eyes for me. So when I left and went back to teaching and think tanking. Uh, at the time, I was I was at the I think tank with Commissioner now Commissioner Purse. Some folks called up and said, "Hey, we got an idea for you. You know, there'd be a great letter to write to the SEC." And uh, you know, Commissioner Purse wasn't. Uh, I think she might have been nominated or whatever, so she wasn't able to work on any kind of projects at that point. So they were stuck with me, and they said, "Let's do a phone call. We'll give you some ideas." And as the phone call starts going. I said, "Oh yeah, what are we going to do? Is there some overregulation somewhere we need to fight? I'm your man. I'm a libertarian." And they said, no, what, what we need, what we'd love is if somebody did a letter trying to stop an, a competitor from coming and getting an exchange license. And <laughs> I said, well, do, do you not know who I am and what I'm about and what we do here? We are libertarian think tank, free market, Virginia Public Choice School of Economics, which studies rent seeking and you know government license and barriers to entry. That's like the opposite of what we do. And the conversations got a little heated. And I think I ended up hanging up on him, and I wrote a letter the other way um, because I just got kind of fired up about it. But I got like a nice email from Brad. Hey, man, just read your letter. I don't know if you know who I am. I was like, yeah, I know who you are. I read read Flash Boys. (laughs) Uh, But I got the nicest email, and you guys invited me to come down for the opening day, and that was really exciting. And so we've been kind of friends ever since. 
Yeah, no, look, we, we, we definitely needed support back in those days, and you had written a, a great comment letter, so we appreciate it. We can still use all the support we can get in many, in many respects, and are, are glad that you have been uh, a good friend. And we're especially glad to have you as a friend because I think we have a lot of uh, a fairly broad set of allies, um, ranging from those that tend to be uh, much more kind of pro-regulatory um, in terms of their uh, views about what the government ought to be doing and how much the government ought to be regulating. I'm kind of, you know, uh, and on the other side um, of the divide, people who are much more free market um, oriented like like you are. So I'm interested to get your perspective to start off about the relative over the last number of years, the extent to which exchanges and other participants have been eager to sue the SEC um, whenever they basically don't like what they're proposed or what they're doing. Um, it seemed like that never happened before. Um, and it feels like it's much more um, often um, to, be, uh, to, to be the case these days. What do you think about that trend? Do you think it's warranted? How do you, how do you distinguish those cases where the SEC is really going too far versus cases where people um, just don't like the result that the SEC is giving them? Well, I think the litigation's always been there, going back to some some nice litigation against the SEC in the 80s and 90s. But I think it picked up speed with a couple of cases in the 2000s, and I think it really hit it in deer in Business Roundtable versus SEC, where the D.C. Circuit came down pretty hard. And I actually supported the, the uh, didn't support, but I just from the sidelines was a, was a supporter of that case uh, that uh, encouraged the SEC with the requirement to conduct some pretty extensive cost-benefit analysis, economic analysis, and its rulemaking under some of these aspects of the some of these changes in the Dodd-Frank Act. So, yeah, I, I was a fan of it, but at the same time, I think there's a whole different dynamic in market structure, and that's why I, I though I, I I mean I won't say I just sort of knee-jerk like every time the SEC gets sued and loses. I think it just depends on the case. It depends on the issues in the corporate governance, corporate finance uh, uh, field. I think we are so far in the regulatory needle that I'd like to see it push back a little bit. But I think market structure is different. Market structure, I look at it the same way I look at issues with respect to any other market intermediary that gets licensed by the government, that has its demand sort of created by the government, that gets benefits from that licensure. So I I, I take a very pro-competition view when it comes to regulation of intermediaries like exchanges, like the big credit rating agencies, like auditors, which is another big one from my interest. And that's where I often find these weird alliances with progressives where they're like, hey, what are you doing over here with me? And I'm like, hey, what are you doing over here with me on this side of the issue? Uh, that's been the case as we've talked about stuff on the, on the I've been serving on the Investor Advisory Committee of the SEC for a few years now. And that's often been the case on those intermediary issues where competition uh, is at issue. And I think where that's the case, the calculus is a little different from a cost benefit perspective and also just from an administrative law uh, perspective. I think the SEC's got a lot more ground there. It, it was regrettable to see the SEC lose in the fee pilot. I thought that was a great design. And I'd love to see more government rulemaking with pilots to figure out what they want to do before they actually do it. That's kind of better from a good if we policy. Could just making. maybe I'll jump in and just explain yep. to listeners what the pilot is, because th- th- this is sort of a key one. There was something called the transaction fee pilot that was proposed by the SEC. If I use any wrong legal words, just Hold your fucking tongue, for Christ's sake. (laughs) And the SEC proposed it in a number of names. It was like 700 and change uh, symbols. 
and uh, it was it was met with uh, unbelievable pushback from the industry, uh, from the other exchanges. Uh, but what was most interesting is in this proposed pilot, when it was out for comment, you had tons of investors like pensions, mutual funds, hedge funds, brokers. Uh, tons of people in the industry support it and say, like, look, it's a pilot. We've been bitching and moaning about rebates being good, bad, and different for years. Why not implement a pilot? So I kind of thought maybe naively that a, a pilot would be something easy to push through. Anyway, long story short, uh, the three big incumbent exchanges of CBOE, NASDAQ, and the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE, uh, they sued the SEC, and they actually won that suit, and the pilot was not e- able to uh, proceed, which was... Fucking mind-blowing to me that that, that that would win. But it, that's what JW is talking about. Yes. Well, I mean, there there was that one. So they won on that one. And then they also won a court decision on uh, market data and um, efforts that the SEC um, had been taking um, to require exchanges to basically review market data fee increases that they had pushed through for um, a number of years previously. So, so there were... A couple of, of decisions in short succession that uh, may have led exchanges to think that they ought to challenge uh, whatever the exchange says that they don't like because they had some success. Do you distinguish those cases from, uh, well, in particular, from uh, questions around rebates, payment for order flow, those kinds of questions that have been in the, the news a lot lately? So I read the tea leaves on the fee pilot decision a little differently, I think, from most people. I see one of the, the concurrence, the, the one of the judges' concurrences in that case said, look, if you want to do something, do it. Do it and back it up. Don't come to me with a fee pilot. This might do something. This might not. We don't know from an administrative law perspective and how that's been interpreted for the SEC's operating statutes. Uh, that's not enough. But just do something. So it was almost like the judge saying, you shouldn't have done saying a pilot. Re- regulate, don't try and do a pilot? Is, is yeah, that what he was saying? Yeah, that's oh, absolutely I, I, what he, he was saying. He certainly was not saying that the agency did not have the power um, to yeah. impose substantive limits if they wanted to, right? That's right. Yeah. And the other thing I think is unique, and this is my new twist on how I think trading and markets regulation, particularly in the f- rebate context, will be reviewed if and when it's sued, as we expect it probably will be. I have a new take on this, which is the fairness focus in the 75 Act amendments and just running all through the 34 Act gives the SEC, at the very least, a non-economic consideration to take into account. And I think for some little sections of the statute, maybe even allows them to ignore the economic analysis and just do a kind of a fairness analysis. That fairness word is very is, is operative, very significant uh, in the 34 Act. And I, I think it could re- give the SEC a real defense in, in um, when it gets sued. I have that that argument in an article I did uh, that the the title of which is uh, "Why a Certain Firm's Threat to Sue the SEC is Unlikely to Succeed." Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I got a little debate going with my friend who's the general counsel there, and uh, I sent him a copy of the article uh, ahead of time just to be nice, you know, said heads up, this is coming out. And uh, to his credit, we had a little back and forth. And to his credit, he said, uh, you know, okay, I understand. It's a good debate to get going. But that's that's what I think will happen. I think the SEC, if it's smart and really emphasizes the fairness aspects of conflicts of interest from rebates, mapping out those conflicts of interest, I think it's got a real belt and suspenders defense 
if it gets sued again. That's the so the I, I, you've here. you've written some interesting things about this. So my interpretation of what you've said, and you can tell me um, where I'm wrong, is that often people's attack on SEC decisions um, is based on something called the Administrative Procedures Act and the requirement that agencies um, justify their decisions, in particular in uh, under the SEC statute by um, a detailed cost-benefit analysis, um, you know, trying to quantify the economic benefits versus the costs of proceeding in one direction um, versus another. And what you've said is that when you're talking about market oversight and the interests of individual investors, that the statute goes beyond that and it says, you also need to make a determination that um, the result is fair. And fairness cannot be totaled in, uh, you know, sort of on either side of the ledger in terms of dollars and cents in quite the same way. Um, So you think that the SEC actually does and should have more flexibility in regulating on those questions where the SEC is supposed to think about fairness. Is that a, is that a fair reading of your writing? Fairly described. Fairly described. Yeah, and, Ren, and Ren is this uh, stupefied over here. I have no idea what the fuck the two of you were even saying. I'm just yeah. going to edit out that last three minutes of Here's, JR's oh, no, rambling yeah. question. This is the good stuff. We're yeah. getting to the good yeah. stuff now. I wrote it in part for an, for an audience of the SEC, and what I want them to do, what I want, if they're sitting there right now, general counsel's office, DERA, I want DERA to do the normal work that they're going to do about you know consumer effects of these rules and and efficiency and 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 you know consumer surplus and all of that. But I also want a fairness analysis on the side. And I want GC's office to say, look, if we wanted to, we could just do this fairness analysis. But we did the economic analysis, too. That's my recommendation. Noted. (laughs) 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 Oh, oh, good. Are you drinking like a big, like, what is that there? Oh, this is an iced tea. It's an iced tea. It looked like one of those, like, Caribbean, like, rum punch drinks. Like a rum punch drink. No, I don't think so. I'm like that. That that'll. that'll JW I, wouldn't do that. We might do that. We, we might do that. We might do that next podcast. <laughs> so I thought along these decisions and the SEC being sued uh, or challenged, uh, there, there was. I, we'd love to get your view on a recent uh, DC Circuit Court uh, decision rejecting NYSE's challenge, and NYSE had challenged uh, the SEC's decision to uh, disapprove a wireless solution they were providing on the roof of their data center, right? Well, actually, they approved the rule filing, but I think... Well, then who uh, fucking challenged? <laughs> well, they basically said... That the, uh, JW, correct me if I'm... As I, as I recall, um, the uh, NYSE wanted to basically have put monopolistic pricing around this wireless t- antenna... Um, installed on the NYSE data center, um, the SEC wouldn't let them do that, and required that they provide other, uh, give other competing providers the ability to basically sell the same kind of access. Um, so NYSE made that change in order to get the SEC approval, but they never accepted the idea that the SEC had the authority to impose those conditions. So then they sued the SEC to say. Fine, you approved it, but we never should have had to file it in the first place. Is that is that right? Uh, I gotta admit, I didn't read the case. The only thing I know about it was from you, us talking. So oh, <laughs> I'm sure your okay. son is right. All right, there you go. <laughs> well, in any event, but as, as I recall, that this case was uh, was one where the um, so we've been talking about challenges to SEC uh, doing sufficient analysis to support yeah. what they're doing. Then the other type of other basic type of admin law challenge is. Does the agency interpret its own statute correctly? And as I recall, this is one of those cases where the SEC 
has the authority to interpret words in statute. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go to something more sexy than all this interpretation of statutes and law. No, mm -hmm. no offense to you two, even though I'm offending you. Let's go to DeFi and Web 3.0. So um, you've recently said that your perspective on the space has shifted in the past year. What was your perspective before? What is it now? And what changed it? Uh, well, I was always interested in crypto. I was wary of the DeFi space a little bit just because it is so new. So crypto generally, I'm always, I've always been interested in, in curious and curious and, and it's really kind of taken over the policy discussions in DC. I've always thought it was interesting. I remember I did one of the first briefings uh, in Congress on Bitcoin in 2013. So I had Jared Brito, who now runs the Coin Center, come into a briefing for the members. And I felt like the conversations back then are almost the same as they are now. You know, the members would raise their hands and say, what about criminals using it? And Jerry, Jerry's been saying this a thousand times since then. He would give his discussion about how, oh, really? Well, you know, they use cash right now. And, you know, <laughs> the thing is, they if they use Bitcoin, it's on the ledger. And once you have public key for one transaction, then you have a record of every transaction associated with that and where it all went and everything. And all the law rankers kind of went, oh, wow, that's interesting. And we're having that same discussion now. It's it's. Uh, I just wish I had said, hey, Jerry, how do I buy some Bitcoin back in 2013? I did not do that, unfortunately. I should have. Uh, so I've always been interested, but I think DeFi is getting really exciting right now. Um, it's it's no longer hot. The kind of DeFi summer is over. So the the air of people jumping in and hoping for a thousand X pop and all that silliness is 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 has died down to some extent. And it's got a lot more uh, coders in that space who are trying to think about smart contracts, trying to think about governance in a real serious way. And that has my attention. So the the thousand X pop stuff was not interesting to me but that stuff is as i get to more, know more people who are like jd slash know how to code who are operating this space uh, some projects seem pretty interesting to me from from that side the questions that have been raised about so-called gamification um, the use of you know sort of fancy digital practices to lure people into uh e either just plain old regular trading uh or into uh digital trading so from the perspective of somebody like you that with a, a free market perspective, you know, I understand that um, this new technology um, provides the potential to um, empower people and disintermediate, disintermediate finance in a way that is really unique. Um, but it also provides an opportunity um, for people to be lured in way over their heads, um, I assume, in ways that have not really happened before, too. Isn't that also a concern and how do you balance those two things in in your head yeah well um i think you're talking about three things let's talk first about the kind of app-based interaction for traditional financial markets of the robin hood and then the difference between what i think should be regulated versus what i think is wise and then we'll talk about crypto so i uh i'm not sure what uh, how, how much authority the sec has to regulate gamification i'm not sure what they're going to plan to do with this rule that they put on the on the agenda, but um, I guess we'll just kind of have to see. You know, it, it's a word. It's a word that comes out of a, out of an enforcement action from the from the Massachusetts financial regulator, and it's just kind of a made up word. It doesn't appear in the statute. You know, thirty three thirty four act gamification. I know what it is. When, I know what people mean when they say it. It's the yeah. little it's a little uh, the little confetti that comes down your app and all that <laughs> stuff. All those rewards. <laughs> I'm not sure that it has a regulatory solution. I, 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 this is a cop-out, but I'll say financial literacy is important. Everybody always says that, and we don't do nearly enough of it. But um, we should have a high school class on financial literacy in every high school in the country uh, where you actually go through the app and you learn why some of this stuff is silly. And you see the charts on, you know, 
30 years of uh, passive investing versus beating 95% of investment advisors, right? Those things are powerful. I'm not sure it has a regulatory solution. I don't love it. I don't like it. I'm not sure it has a regulatory solution. But in the crypto space, I would say there's a, um, there's a wide range of variation. There's all kinds of like pump and dump schemes that you'll find on crypto's Twitter, no doubt. And it's hard to navigate around those. But there are some really fascinating projects that are designed by people like the original founders of Ethereum. They're the next group of builders like that. Um, that are operating outside of intermediate custody. So you take your, you, you put your money in your own hands and you better sh be sure you're using custodial technology that works. You better be sure you're doing your own diligence. And you know if you don't know how to use Etherscan, uh, you don't have some basic understanding of, of the, the white papers, you definitely don't need to be in that space at all. But there are some projects in there that are fascinating, that take governance seriously, that say, okay, there's this one governance token and the governance token gets fees and the governance token is the backstop for the liquidity pool that has designs like that that are designed to endure over the long term. Yeah, I mean, you know, no, no doubt there's plenty of opportunity um, for these kinds of um, platforms and instruments to be a laboratory for all kinds of innovation. I guess the question is where uh, they are either being used or seen or sold as investments of one type or another to a broad class of people, you enter a different kind of space. And how do you feel about uh, Chair Gensler's, I think, general point of view on this stuff that in order for you know the, the these kinds of markets to mature and gain adoption by a broad range of, of people it really kind of needs to be under some kind of regulatory umbrella maybe more than one I think that he'd be surprised by how many crypto lawyers I know who would agree with what you just said who want to see a new approach. Uh, I did something to try to get a little attention. I filed for a for a rule proposal to, to that was just a request for a call for public comment on on digital asset regulation, uh, and I had something like thirty or forty questions I came up with about things I'd love to see people talk about. I know that the discussions at the staff level, when people go in and talk to the staff, they go to Fin, uh, the the fintech hub, or they go to uh, you know any one of the divisions. There are sophisticated conversations with people who really get it. And even in enforcement, I, I'm not a fan of all the enforcement cases in this area. Particularly, I'm a been a very vocal critic of the of the case against Ripple. But if you look at all the enforcement cases that have settled for 33 Act violations of of token offerings, a lot of them involve the SEC saying, "Okay, if people want their money back, give it back." For those that want to keep their tokens, they can keep their tokens. A lot of those settlements went that way, and I think that's very smart. And in most of them, 90% of the people said, "Nope, I'm keeping my token. This is going great." Uh, that was a very kind of reasonable way to do an enforcement action. We haven't seen that yet in the rhetoric from the speeches from the chairman. I hope that there will be some engagement, though. I think a call for public comment would be great. I'd love to see what everybody writes in for ideas. Because here's the problem. On the one hand, compliance with traditional items in the 33 Act is impossible. If, if a minor, this is a, just a basic, one of the basic questions. If a miner is mining in exchange for tokens that they intend to sell, they're probably an underwriter under the 33 Act. If the miners become 33 Act underwriters, the whole thing shuts down. That is not going to work. It's just not going to work. On the other hand, there's all kinds of things I'd like to know in a, in a, if it, there's a kind of a registered token offering, all kinds of things I'd like to know that are not necessarily included in Reg SK. I'd like to know more about, rather than traditional auditing, I'd like to know more about how the code's been audited. I'd like a report from the, the kind of IP specialists that are auditing 
the, the code is written pre-launch. I'd like to know more about tokenomics, more, more about how tokens will be distributed, uh, how tokens will be convertible into other things in ways that are not like traditional financial instruments. So I think there could be some, some standardized disclosure that you'd actually find a lot of people in the crypto community saying, wow, that's great, thanks, helpful, that's helpful. And, and you can have things like key person risk. Uh, there was a recent example, I think, of one of these tokens that had, uh, you know, sort of the senior developer who had like been responsible for this announced he was leaving and suddenly the, the, the value uh, just took a no nosedive. And that's obviously a risk that can e exist in kind of conventional uh, financial offerings too. But. So, so you actually you actually filed something, or I, probably wrong terminology, but called for comment, and you 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 proposed all of these questions, or what what what's the thing that you're most interested in hearing the answer to from your questions? Yeah, uh, yeah, I called it the uh, digital asset regulation genesis block. So the genesis block was the first block mined on the on the, the Bitcoin. And how did you do uh, that? Blockchain. You you, you do that through like the SEC? Like this is a this is a, a formal comment process. Yeah, you can. Uh, there's um, every couple weeks somebody files a, uh, does a filing for public comment. Uh, anybody can do it. If you okay. go track through them, there's some stuff that it, it's crazy. Anybody can do it. So yeah, it gets real weird. <laughs> it gets real, real weird real fast. I didn't know but, that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this, um, I got this idea from my buddy Rob Jackson, who who did uh, before he was a commissioner. He filed a proposal for political expenditure disclosure. Got all kinds of attention from it. So I thought I'd copy Rob's idea. I do this uh, filing for for a uh, request for public comment on digital asset regulation. It's gotten some attention on crypto Twitter, but I guess maybe not as much attention inside the building. But um, well, well, I think now with this idea. podcast is it's going to be blasted out into the. There you go. You're going you're to be besieged with people. That's a great Good. idea, actually, yeah. to get the to get it going in a public forum in that way. Yeah. And it doesn't commit the SEC to anything. They don't have to do anything. But I'd love to see people writing in and saying, you know. Here's some ways where compliance doesn't work. Proxy. I mean, if you've got governance tokens that you're using your wallet to vote, you don't need proxy statements. You don't need blue cards. You don't need any of that stuff. Uh, but technically right now, a token offering that's registered would have to comply with all the proxy rules. But you don't need any of that. Interesting. You learn something every day. Well, I, I, you know, you probably learned more during this podcast than I have, but yes, no, we I all learned the first <laughs> we all ten minutes. Something. Clown. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what about Ukraine? You want to ask about Ukraine? I was Robert? gonna, I was gonna ask a question in Ukraine because uh, obviously we're we're recording this in March eighth, so it's you know it's it's a it's a really shocking thing that's going on, right? So I'm not making light of it whatsoever, but um, you, you've written recently in your newsletter and also on Twitter about activists using crypto to donate to causes in Ukraine. So using crypto for good, for lack of a better term, but also over the past couple of days, there's been a lot of, maybe attacks is the wrong way to phrase it, but there's been a lot of questioning uh, on focusing on crypto and how it can be used to evade sanctions. As, as you see countries placing sanctions on Russia, can crypto be used in a bad way? So both the good way to help Ukraine, uh, both the bad way to uh, dodge sanctions. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, um, I, so fucking I'm, I'm great not a, question, by the way, Ronan. That's, yeah, that's the first very, thing you're going to say, JW. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Ronan. Um, I'm not a sanctions expert, so I can talk about it. Just just summarizing the things I've read from smart people who know more than I do. So I follow some of the folks who are commenting on this. A former FinCEN director is saying, "Yeah, I don't." And and currently, in intelligence community are both saying, "Yeah, we don't think Russia can meaningfully evade sanctions using crypto." First of all, the market cap on the most readily transmittable crypto, like if you just include Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, you know, it's not enough. It's not enough market cap to really transmit it. 
And if you're transmitting it in large chunks like that, the kind of whale transmission, it's very, very, very easy to track and therefore keep from ever interacting with the normal banking system, with the fully sanctioned compliant banking system. So it's like, I think the consensus among experts, at least as far as I've read, is that you can use crypto to evade sanctions, but not in any kind of meaningful way, in a minor way, probably no more than you could use cash to evade sanctions. And the point of sanctions is not to catch every drip, it's to, yep. it's to keep big chunks of money from moving. Right. But I, I, I guess the further question is, there's the specific questions around, uh, can people, you know, sort of evade these particular sanctions? But I think it also has been pointed to as an example that with the growth of these markets, um, is this an example of why people maybe ought to be concerned about the use of these kinds of tokens and alternative currencies displacing fiat or or other you know AML controls in a way that should leave us concerned. I mean, you know, the advantage a lot of this blockchain tra- technology is the decentralization, the fact that you've got no sort of single um, governing authority that can uh, sort of restrict how it's used in particular. But there may be times where you want that level of control. Well, um, I'll set aside my dream of a fully decentralized world in 30 years for now because we probably have different views on that. In the near term, decentralized finance and centralized finance, if decentralized finance is going to survive, it's going to have some kind of a marriage of some kind with centralized finance. They're going to come together, and it's going to be some kind of a marriage of them. I mean, it already is with the centralized crypto exchanges, who are all, I mean, they are sanctions, AML compliant, uh, you know, uh, up to the moon. Just for fun, I've followed the LinkedIn updates about Coinbase, and... Uh, first of all, they're hiring hundreds of people a week and it's all, uh, half of it's AML, AML, AML all the time. And I think the onboarding of crypto to the broad public, if if it's going to happen, it's going to become mostly through centralized exchanges that are going to be fully AML compliant. And in a way that I think law enforcement is going to be happy with, because uh, I think law enforcement has come to realize that, wow, blockchain is a heck of a tool for us. What I've learned about this area, I've learned from following Chainalysis, which does some great work, and they are the kind of outsourced law enforcement consultant for DOJ, FBI. I think that that union has kind of worked for them. I don't think the DeFi dream is coming anytime soon. I think it's TradFi and DeFi working together. TradFi is going to try to totally do it on their own. They've already kind of tried to do it. We've got private blockchain networks. That didn't work. Uh, I don't think DeFi is going to get broad retail adoption on its own, I think they're going to have to come together and and develop some alliances. I think that's what the future looks like. And produce progeny that will uh, have not not bastard children. Good use of that (laughs) word. (laughs) (laughs) That's the drumbeat that John gets whenever he uses a big word. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) did we prep... JW. Well, I mean, for the you know, question of questions, if he has been paying attention at all and has yeah. ever listened to a Boxes and Lines episode, then I assume he has some idea about what's coming next. But if not, we're about to put you on the spot yeah, here. We're gonna, but before yeah. we do, we're going to ask you do you like to dance? <laughs> what's your favorite Wall Street movie? <laughs> Good time. <laughs> We've never done that that way before, and we probably yeah, never, will, never again. will again. But uh, yes. yes, no, uh, we, we we ask all our guests, and you know, we've got some interesting answers. What's your favorite Wall Street movie, and why? Money never sleeps, baby. Wall Street, the movie. 
<laughs> Which I love because Oliver Stone intended it to be caricature. It intended it to be a warning movie. And I watched it, and everybody else in my generation watched it and was like, I want to be that guy. That looks awesome. Yeah, <laughs> right. isn't it incredible? Is <laughs> Michael Lewis, in interviews, has said that he wrote Liar's Poker with the same thing in mind. And it served as almost like the uh, Bible for people in college <laughs> wanting to join Wall Street afterwards. Right. I actually saw recently uh, uh, a documentary on HBO Max on Carl Icahn. And I didn't know, obviously, you know, they would call him the corporate raider back in the days. But they showed interviews of him uh, word for word saying stuff that then Michael Douglas was saying in the movie. Do you remember in the movie when Michael Douglas went to the the board meeting for that public company and attacked them. And I think that was when he said, greed is good. Yeah. So right. it almost said word for word what Carl Icahn said. Didn't know if you all knew that out there, you Wall Street movie <laughs> icons, but I just <laughs> taught you, you something. But you've been told that. Very welcome. Well, very you. welcome. The yeah, crowd's going wild. Sorry, JW, I'm just playing with these sounds. Yeah, no, Carl right Icahn's now. great. And yeah. we should do another podcast. So this is, I know this is a market structure podcast, but my iconoclastic views about the Williams Act and why I'm a pro raider. Uh, that'll get that'll get uh, a lot of listeners. Like a, a yeah. barn burner. Tell you what, I'll have you and John do it yourself. <laughs> okay. or, or, or if we do it after Lent and I'm back on the beer, yeah, <laughs> give, give me give me a six pack head start and we'll okay. be right back for it. So, John, yeah. do you want to you want to you know what we say at every podcast? No one leaves here with nothing. <laughs> but I <laughs> think you nothing. probably have an idea about how little you are likely to leave uh, with. But we do have a pair of IEX socks, uh, very comfortable, very stylish, um, that we're going to send you. And the only thing that we ask is that you take a picture of your feet when you're wearing Wearing the socks, the socks right? please. Yeah, wearing, wearing the socks. Okay, yes. No <laughs> naked feet, please. Yeah, no. <laughs> we, we wouldn't want that. You got it? Well, other podcasts might. But <laughs> anyway, listen... JW, we've taken enough of your time. We appreciate you joining us, and I'm sure we'll have you back on again. Thank you very much for joining Boxes and Lines. Here comes the shit Irish accent. Until next time, God bless. God Thanks, bless JW. us, everyone. There you go. You're better than him. <laughs> you're, you're coming back now. It's, oh, people will be oh like, JW and Ronan. Yeah. yeah. Good one. That came out Thank very you, well. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Sarah Forster, with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.